she had a 10-pound baby, <laughs> also known as a rest-sized baby. So um, <laughs> thank you so much for your prayers. Um, absolutely, absolutely the most valuable thing for us. Thank you. Um, I have a prayer I'd like to read for us as we start. Um, if you bow your heads and just listen as I read this. Thou art the blessed God, happy in thyself, source of happiness in thy creatures, my maker, benefactor, proprietor, upholder. Thou hast produced and sustained me, supported and indulged me, saved and kept me. Thou art in every situation able to meet my needs and miseries. May I live by thee, live for thee, never be satisfied with my Christian progress, but as I resemble Christ. May conformity to his principles, temper, and conduct grow hourly in my life. Let that unexampled love constrain me into holy obedience and render my duty my delight. If others deem my faith folly, my meekness infirmity, my zeal madness, my hope delusion, my actions hypocrisy, may I rejoice to suffer for thy name. Keep me walking steadfastly towards the country of everlasting delights, that paradise land, which is my true inheritance. Support me by the strength of heaven, that I may never turn back or desire false pleasures, and will disappear into nothing. As I pursue my heavenly journey by thy grace, let me be known as a man with no aim, but that of a burning desire for thee, and the good and salvation of my fellow men. Father, as we approach um, a large section of your word today, Father, I, I pray for clarity. Um, I, I pray for congruency, Father, that we're able to see what is happening uh, to your chosen people. And as we try to take that uh, through the cross and see what it means with Christ in the picture now, uh, Father, what are we to do with this? Uh, how, how do we live? What are the warnings? Uh, Father, just let us be faithful to your text today as we consume a great amount of it. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, so the boss is away. We're going to have a little fun today. I got you guys moving around already with the kind of prayer thing. Um, we're going to have some fun. Uh, I'll save that for in the middle, though, the kind of wake-up call. Um, as I was preparing for this, um, again, I didn't have a ton of time, um, but I am excited because I wasted about half of the time that I did have in just continuing the reading. Um, <laughs> we're covering a large amount of God's Word today. Um, and this is part two, so I, I don't intend to go um, until three. Um, I want you guys to be able to spend time with your mothers today. Um, I'm certainly excited to be able to do that. Um, but as I was preparing, it, this isn't like, like you experienced last week, an exegetical, really an expository message. Um, we're not just picking a passage and hammering through it. Uh, we're trying to get our two objectives again, are to have a broad understanding, an overall picture of what the Bible is what it talks about, what is its, its stories, themes, all those things, and how they point to Christ as their ultimate fulfillment in the typological movement, as we've talked about. The second is how do we interpret Scripture? How do we particularly interpret the Old Testament? And then from there, really, how does that look like through the lens of Christ? Because if we're going now in 2013 backwards, we have to be able to look at what happened in 2000 B.C., through the lens of Christ as we move to where we are now. So last week we talked about God's people, Genesis 12 um, through Exodus 18. We, we talked about really the Abrahamic covenant, um, the, uh, the moving of 
the land, uh, the nation of Israel into Egypt. We talked about then the Exodus is where they were pulled out as God's people, a remnant saved. They left Egypt, they left the bondage, the slavery of Egypt, and God pulled them out of there. And then from there we see in Exodus, uh, particularly chapter 20, but um, after 18, God's rule and blessing. So we look at the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, um, however you want to kind of go after that. What is the law? When we talk about the Old Testament, a lot of times we're talking about the law, right? What is that? What, where does it kind of fit in? And we talked about how that's God's rule at that time, right? Um, how does that then transition into now? And Matt kind of concluded last week with uh, what that looks like particularly for us. And then the subsequent blessing of living under Christ's rule. Now that's going to play a huge part in what we talk about today in God's place. So as you listen to today, um, as we kind of progress through these stories, I, I really want you to have your notes from last week, maybe try to draw some lines between the two papers, particularly when we're talking about God's blessing concerning his rule. Because God's rule carries with it one of two things. If you listen to it, it's a blessing. If you don't, then it's a curse. And we're going to see that recur many times as we move through these. Um, so, again, as I was preparing, I, this isn't a straightforward expository message. Um, so I tried to kind of piece together um, some different just stuff for me to say. And I was just, don't really have a lot. Um, we're going to read a lot of scripture today, so I hope you have your Bibles. Um, we're going to be tearing through some of this stuff. I can't say it any better than these stories do. Um, so what my goal is today is to illustrate God's place and God's king through the different primary texts, or in some cases just example texts, of what we're talking about. Um, and again, I wasted about half my time just reading. I didn't waste it. It was very valuable. Um, I used half of my time uh, just continuing reading through these stories. They're so fresh. They're so um, good and so encouraging. Um, some of them are really depressing, but it's really cool to see where we're at now. So with that, let's tear into this. We're going to talk first about God's place. God's place. So we've looked at kingdom. What's the idea of kingdom? God's people, God's place, God's rule, and subsequent blessing, right? But we've knocked out two of those, God's people. Then we skipped God's place and started talking about God's rule and blessing. Why do we do that? Chronologically, well, first of all, my definition of kingdom is not necessarily straight from Scripture. It doesn't say that in, you know, Rusty chapter 2, verse 3. That's not there. We're moving chronologically through Scripture. So the first one was Genesis through Exodus. Then we looked in Exodus, and we continued moving on through there. We see God establishes people first, the nation of Israel. Then he establishes the rules and the laws by which they will live by. And then we get to see in Joshua um, and even in Judges, God establishing his place. So they're moving from Egypt into the place that God has set aside for them. So we find ourselves in God's place. The promise first is found in Genesis 12, 7. To your offspring, he's talking of whom? Abraham, right? This is back in the Abrahamic covenant. We see, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, we move through that covenant. We move through a lot of what that is, and we're talking again about the partial kingdom. This is part two of that. The partial kingdom or the partial fulfillment. What you're going to see today, spoiler alert, God answers all of his promises. He, he delivers on all of them. So why is it not the complete promise? Why is it not the promised fulfillment? Why isn't it that? Why is it partial 
fulfillment? Why is it a partial kingdom when he's answered all of his promises? Well, as we're going to see a lot in the Old Testament, they have different layers or levels of fulfillment. And so what's going to happen is at the end of the day, we're going to see, well, not at the end of the day, right before the end of the day, we're going to see that God has answered all of his promises. But they've not yet been completed in Christ. We don't have our Messiah. We don't have our Christ. We don't have the perfect people in the perfect place with the perfect rule and subsequent blessing. So it is partial in the sense that it is not complete, even though it is everything that God promised. There's still more to come. So with that, let's talk about the partial fulfillment. First, we find ourselves in Numbers. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, not because I'm David Platt, but because we're going to read a lot, uh, we'll start in Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. So we find ourselves first in Numbers. Numbers is about disobedience and delay. Disobedience and delay. Found myself relatively scatterbrained this week. Um, this helps me anchor. All right, so we're going to read. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 25, let's read together. It says, At the end of 40 days they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it were of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? 
And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. We find ourselves in numbers, disobedience, and delay. What had God just done? What had He just done? He had delivered them from Egypt. They walk right out. God splits the sea, consumes all the Egyptians. They go and they see the presence of the Lord on top of Mount Sinai. But even then, what happens? Moses is taking his time up there and we need something to worship. So bring your gold. Let's make a calf and let's worship it. Having just seen then what God had done, seeing his presence and being at the very place of God, if you even touched the mountain, you would die. And they still worship a golden calf. God takes them out of there and they're in front of the promised land. They send in spies and they come back and they give a poor report. Caleb and Joshua are saying, no, we can take it. God will give it to us. The people that are so great as if we're grasshoppers to their stature, They're bread for us. Our God is mighty. Our God is powerful. He will give us what he promised. And the people complain when they say, we should go back to Egypt. Disobedience, delay. I think what's really cool, even in this moment, let's look at Moses' response. Moses' response in chapter 14, verse 13. It says, But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, It is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And so the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he was a different spirit and has followed me truly, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. So, there's still a remnant, right? There's, there's Caleb, there's Joshua. They're on board. But the rest of them aren't. But Moses takes some time to intercede for his people, which I, as, as a pastor, it breaks my heart to, to try to look and see how, how do I intercede for the people that God has me leading. And to... to to beg God for relief for my own life and my sin? Does it, does it burden me this much? 
Does it burden me? Um, and, and understand, this is not Moses negotiating, okay? This is him remembering the promises of God and, and trying to claim them. He has to abate God's anger, but as a leader of concern for his people. So he, he relents to a degree. God does not destroy the entire people. It's not game over. But the people who are rebelling will not see the land. They will spend 40 years wandering on the edge of their promised land and never see it for themselves. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? How do we interpret this? What's our hermeneutic for taking the Old Testament into the New Testament? Well, Paul makes it very easy for us. If you got your Bibles, let's go way over to the other side. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. Start in verse 1. Listen for some key words here, all right? This is Paul doing Bible, all right? Verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place. Why? As examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So what am I implying? That food offered to idols is anything or that the idol is anything? No, I imply that what the pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Well, the first half of that, obviously, is kind of painting for us a picture of what we had just read. The second half of what 1 Corinthians that we just read is saying is going to be coming. You're going to see this play out, and it's going to be miserable. It's going to be miserable. But this is why. This is what we do with it. We always let Scripture interpret Scripture first. right? Paul takes this and interprets it for us. Absolutely divine, absolutely inspired. We know what it means because he was an inspired writer telling us what God would have him 
Right, so that's how we interpret it. That's what we do with that. What do we do with, with the Exodus? What do we do with the Red Sea? What do we do with the wilderness? What do we do with God killing an entire generation of his people? What do we do with that? That. It was an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Well, what did they desire that was evil? They weren't obeying God. They were desiring their life. They were afraid for their life, afraid that God would not provide. It'd be better for us to be slaves in bondage in Egypt than for us to go in here and to die by the sword. So their disobedience and delay was their primary sin. So then we move on to Deuteronomy. This is the last book of the Torah. It's the second giving of the law. It's Moses' like, final kind of hurrah, all right? Deuteronomy, blessings and curses. So this is what sets the stage for what's going to be happening later in the time of the kings. This part informs us for what's going to be our second point of the sermon. So Deuteronomy, blessings and curses. Start in chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's read together. Verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, for the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, or I'm sorry, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments for a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. So, we have a restating of who are the people of Israel. If we're looking through what is the kingdom of God, we have God's people, God's place, God's rule and subsequent blessing. So God's people, he, he defines it again here. We had that last week in Genesis 12, where Abraham is given the Abrahamic covenant. It's a promise from God that he's going to have many descendants. They're going to number as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashores. That's his people. And Deuteronomy 7 then lays it out again for us and saying, why did God choose you? It's not because you were more in number than any other nation. In fact, you were the fewest. You were the smallest. You were the weakest. We see election right here. <laughs> it, it pleased God to choose this people. Why didn't he choose the other? Well, for the same reason that he didn't choose Cain. For the same reason that he didn't choose Esau. It pleased God to choose who he chooses for his purposes. So then we find ourselves in Deuteronomy chapter 10. So this is the people. What are we supposed to do? What... What is our rule? What, what do you desire of us? So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, he lays it out. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, which is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Does that sound familiar? So that's what they're supposed to do. Just obey. Follow God's rules. Follow his statutes. That's what he requires of them. We talked about that for an extended amount of time when we were studying Hosea. What is the covenant? What are we supposed to do? What's on our side? Because God is full of steadfast love. He keeps his covenants perfectly. So what's required of us? He lays it out there. So then kind of with the blessing and curse as part of, of Deuteronomy, where do we get that from? Where do we get that? If we're talking about God's place, how does this, this play out? So in Deuteronomy with blessings and curses, we find ourselves towards the end in verse or chapter 28. So if you can flip to Deuteronomy chapter 28, we'll see first blessings. Where do I say we get blessings from? Deuteronomy chapter 8, 28, verse 1. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God. It's pretty simple, right? You guys tracking with me so far? I mean, it, it's very, very linear, right? He, he delivers them. They disobey. They, they take their time. He gets rid of an entire generation. And Moses is getting ready to die. They're at the edge of the promised land. This new generation's rip-roaring, ready to go. What do we need to do, Moses? You're, you can't enter the promised land. God said that you were not allowed. So what do we do? You're our leader. What do we do? Obey the Lord your God. The same law that he gave us at Sinai was meant for now. Your forefathers didn't want to do that. But God is faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham. He continues today. So if you obey the voice of the Lord, you will be blessed. But we find a few verses later in verse 15 of chapter 28, the other side. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Way down in verse 63, kind of lays out what this looks like. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. 
Blessings and curses. At the end of Deuteronomy, the people have a choice. The people of God are getting ready to go into the place of God with the rule of God. Will they keep it? That's the question mark. So, how do we get the land? Joshua, the conquest. Joshua, the conquest. Joshua chapter 21 is what we'll read for this. So the people go into the promised land, the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, grapes so big that they had to carry them on a pole between two people. I mean, a awesome, awesome land. They walk around Jericho and the walls fall down. God is all over this place. They have one job to do. Kill everything. Now, that sounds horrible to us, right? That absolutely offends our modern sensibilities. We're thinking of uh, the ex- extinction or extermination of Jews. We're thinking of uh, ethnic cleansing. Horrible things, right? Why is God sanctioning this? What's, what's the point here with this? There's a point of hermeneutic that we have to do here. How do we interpret Old Testament practices through the New Covenant? Would God now have us do ethnic cleansing as he did with the land of Israel, or the people of Israel? Well, absolutely not. Why? What changes between these two periods? Here, it's God's chosen people, the rest of the world. Something that I do not delight in, but I do find truth in, is the fact that these other people that are not Israel go to hell. They do. They're not God's chosen people at this time. Where's the hope in that? Well, we talked about it a couple weeks ago in Ephesians 2. Now we're all the people, or can be, the people of God. Not in a universalistic sense, but in the fact that the gospel has now been opened to the Gentiles. Right? There's no distinction by race, color, gender. No distinction. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. The question now for us is will we repent? Will we seek grace and reconciliation with Christ? Or will we continue to seek our own ways? But it is available to us. That's the hope now for us. So why did they have ethnic cleansing, if you will, here? One of the primary problems you're going to see as we march through God's king is the fact that these other people had their own gods. They were not the people of God, so they had their own gods. We talked a lot about that in Hosea, particularly with Baal. There's several other ones depending on what nation you're looking at. So what was God's goal in telling them, when you go into Jericho, kill everything? Because if you let them stick around, they're going to pollute you. They're going to bring their faith and mix it with yours. And we're going to have this awful syncretism that's happening. We try to merge in what God has commanded in his rule with what they believe. Unfortunately, they don't. (laughs) And this stuff happens. It sticks around. But we see, we're talking about the partial fulfillment of the kingdom. So let's, let's see what happens. In Joshua 21, verse 43, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land, that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word 
of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So, awesome. God's people are in God's place, under God's rule, and are enjoying His blessing and rest. But there's a note of caution found in the book as it ends in Joshua's farewell sermon to his people, rather as Moses had done in Deuteronomy. He urges them to fear God and obey his law and warns that if they disobey, they will be expelled from the land. So it seems as if everything's been fulfilled. We find ourselves at the end of Joshua with God's people in his place and his perfect dress and blessing and rule. It's, it's all there. Everything that they, They're innumerable now. They have rest on all sides. There's no one attacking them. All the land that was promised to them has been given. It's all there. It's not complete. How do we know it's not complete? Well, two reasons. We've not seen yet the Christ, the Messiah. And then the second reason, because there would be no need for this caution that Joshua gives in his farewell address. If you go over another two chapters to Joshua chapter 23, we see a very, very familiar sounding warning. Verse 6 of chapter 23. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Sound familiar? That middle part is why they needed to kill everybody, because of the mixing. The last part is exactly, exactly what Moses was saying. So, time of transition. The whole nation of Israel in God's place. There are God's people. Seems like we're there. They don't have a king. Do they need a king? Why is David, Saul, Solomon, why do the kings even come around? If they're the nation of Israel and they're God's people, then what's the king for? So our second thing that we're going to discover today is just God's king. Let's talk about that. Where does God's king come from? What is the partial fulfillment of this kingship? First, we see that the, there's a promise. A pro, the king is hinted at in Genesis 3. We're talking about the fall, the curse has come out. And God has a curse for Satan, the snake, the serpent. He says, he will crush your head. So who is he who will crush the head? Well, everything after Genesis 3 is an ongoing search for the serpent crusher. We're trying to find this person who is the serpent crusher. And now it's made explicit, this promise of a king, in Deuteronomy chapter 17. We're not going to read all that um, right now, but in Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you want to write this down, 
verses 14 through 20, uh, we see that God promises a king. All right. Um, he says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, then they'll say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. And you indeed will set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Uh, so they're, they're made explicit that there will be a king. So what's the partial fulfillment here? Well, we move on in Scripture to the judges. Book of Judges is one of my favorite books. Don't ask me why. I think it's because I'm a man and I like, um, I, I like battle, right? <laughs> Um, this is what, I, I just like it. It's, it's, it's a really interesting book. Um, what we're going to find is it's a cycle of sin and grace. Judges is a cycle of sin and grace. The entire book is. Up on the screen, you're going to see a big circle, all right? They follow this cycle six times. There's six major judges in the book of Judges, six, six cycles, there's six to seven other rulers. Um, you can think of them as just like really powerful court judges in the fact that they like arbitrate and, and make law and rules. Um, but this, these six cycles, we're talking about um, leaders, like military type leaders who are um, gaining victory. So what happens essentially in these cycles is at the top, you can see an example in chapter three if you want to look through this later, but the people turn from God. So they must be following God in order to turn from him. So they turn from God. From there, God judges them by delivering the people into their enemies. So they've got enemies all around them, but God had given them rest from that. But when they turn, God judges them by... I need my chart back. <laughs> God judges them by bringing about enemies upon them again. So then they're like, oh, wow, that was a bad idea. The people turn back to God. But this thing is still pressing in. So God sends a judge to rescue the people. After a victory, there's a period of peace under the judge. It's never very long, but there's a time of peace. And then soon again, the people turn away from God, and the cycle is repeated. It's happened six times. It's exciting and depressing. It's like the movies where you see them walking into danger, and you're like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Ah, you did it. Right? They do it over and over and over again. So, I told you the boss is away, so we're going we're gonna to play a little bit. Um, we're going to do some interactive, uh, interactive acting, all right? We're going to do a skit. So, I need some volunteers. I need a, a semi-sissy man who wants to be that person. You don't have to be semi-sissy, you just have to play the role. Anybody? Come on up. Hang on to that for me. I'll introduce you in a minute. I need a sissy man. Oh, I gave you the wrong one. There you go. Oh, great. I'll let you guys discuss your parts. You can switch if you want. <laughs> um, I need a man who doesn't have to talk. Come on up. I need a strong leader type lady. Yeah, feel free to elect other people. 
Sarah? Oh, come on. You have, you have a lot of lines. <laughs> now I need a lady who's not afraid to get your hands dirty. I mean that very seriously. Yeah, all right. Come on up. All right, we're going to act this out very uh, impromptu, okay? I'm going to try not to let my mic feedback from right here. I'll be the narrator, all right? Um, down here we have Heber, all right? Wave. Hi, Heber. All right, awesome. I don't know if you guys changed parts, but you should probably be Barack, right? Dave? Yeah. All right. This is Barack. Matt is going to be Cicera. That is a dude name, kind of. Matt is going to be Cicera. Sarah is going to be Deborah. And Chastity is going to be Jail. All right? Don't read ahead. You're cheating. All right? All right. <laughs> so let me play this out. I'll be the narrator. All right? And the people of Israel, again, this is Judges chapter 4 if you want to follow along. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the land of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. Yay. All right. Who lived in Herosheth, Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out for the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. So Sarah, Deborah, is the judge of Israel at this time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. She had a tree named after her. Between Ramah and Bethel, in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came to her for judgment. So, these people are coming in and they're, they're attacking. And you guys, Israel, yell out, help! Help! help. Alright, so you come to Deborah and she's going to deliver you. So she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinadom from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, so, yeah, there we go. All right. Yep. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out to Sarah, the general of Zebulun's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, and with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hands. Barak says... All right, so I missed my uh, introduction here for our time, so don't worry about it. Thank you, Adam. This is the story of jail with a nail, or what I like to call episode one of Sissy Man, Barack, not Obama. All right? So Barack is scared. He wants Deborah to go ahead with her, and, or with him. And he says, or she says that the Lord was not going to give you glory because you're too afraid. Sissy Man, all right? Narrator, that's me. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So they go on over to our right. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, come on over here, Heber. You pitch your tent right here. Very good. All right. It's near Kadesh. So Heber is living over yonder, all right? You can just kind of chill there. 
in your tent. Very good. All right. Now, when Sisera was told that Barak and the son of Abinom had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him, for Harashoth Agoyim to the river Kashon. And Deborah said to Barak, And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and they arm wrestled. <laughs> arm wrestle. Go. Arm wrestle. Good. All right, keep fighting. All right, and they routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. Flee for a while. <laughs> and Barak pursued the chariots and the, man, and the army to Harashoth Hagayim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left, but Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber. And Heber was gone. Okay. You're Jael. This is also your tent. You were married to him. Sorry. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, So he turned aside to her in her tent, and she covered him with a rug. Lay down. Lay down. We're going to hide you. Oh. <laughs> Cover him with a rug. Like right here? Yep. Not over his face. He covered him with a rug. And he said to her, So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her head. And she went softly to him while he was sleeping. And drove the peg into his temple. And it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. <laughs> into the ground. Into the ground. It goes all the way into the ground, yeah. Into the ground. Very good. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera. Jael went out to meet him and said to him, So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Very good. Thank you, guys. Don't ever tell me that the Bible's boring. All right. Jail with a nail. A little graphic. I'm sorry. It didn't split like I was hoping it would. Oh, well. All right. So what does that mean? That was a short example, um, really, of the cycle. So they turn away from God, 
God judges them by sending nations against them. In this case, um, it was Jabin, um, one of the Canaanites. And, and they come against them, and the people of Israel cry out for help because he oppressed them for 20 years. And he had 900 chariots. That's a lot of metal. Right? I mean, that's their tanks. They're oppressing them, and they're just a very powerful enemy. So they cry out for help. God takes Deborah, a lady. So, gentlemen, you are called to be leaders of your households, okay? If you don't lead, God's going to use women who are very willing to, all right? If you're going to be a sissy man, God's going to give the glory to somebody else. So I want to encourage you guys to, to use this, um, not in a direct allegory type way, but, I mean, we've got to be men of God who will lead. Uh, as we saw, Barak was scared. So what happens then is they turn to the Lord for help. He responds by raising up a judge or a ruler. The judge defeats the enemy in the power of God's spirit and restore peace to the land. So Barak's army destroyed the army. Sisera fled. And then ultimately, who gets glory for that? Jail. With a nail. All right? This has been an episode of Masterpiece Theater. All right. That's one example. We have another example in Jephthah and his daughter. This is a judge who said, God, if you give me the, uh, the victory today, the first thing that comes out of my house, I will sacrifice for you. It's his daughter. Um, Scripture is not entirely explicit on what happens, all right? Um, he could have killed his daughter. I don't think that's what happened. Uh, the context does not lead itself to that way. Um, Robert will tell you that he did kill his daughter, uh, if you're reading God's big picture with us. Um, I think she was given into temple service. That's why she uh, cries out for two months to mourn her virginity. It ends the line of Jephthah, um, so he has no more sons and daughters. It's very explicit in those type ways. Um, we don't really have any indication that she um, died. It's kind of like uh, he used sacrifice in a sort of figurative sense. So if I say I'm going to sacrifice a few dollars for charity, I don't take a match and light them on fire, right? I mean, for me, it's a sacrifice, but I'm not killing or destroying. It's going to something good. It's very similar to, to the daughter. Um, we have Gideon, or what I like to call episode two, sissy man. Um, the super chicken strikes back. All right. Yep. All right. Uh, Samson, uh, being the, one of the final, the final judge, uh, he was a womanizer. I mean, these are not people to emulate by any means, um, but they are still an example of a ruler or a not quite king, but a leader who God raised up, used his spirit to help deliver his people. Um, but what we should do really is find ourselves not emulating these people, but longing for a better king, longing for a Samson who's not a womanizer who can keep his vows, his Nazarite vow. Longing for a, a Gideon who's not afraid of everything, that he's trying to thresh wheat in a wine cellar. I mean, we need a king who's going to finally deliver. We need somebody who's going to have a solution to the lasting problem of sin, to this lasting problem of turning from God and, and being disobedient, delaying all these things that the Israelites are doing. And so we find ourselves in, in the end of Judges um, with something that's repeated multiple times. It ends with some words in Judges chapter 21, 25. It says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, they had the law with the warnings of Moses and Joshua to keep the law, and there'll be blessing or curse. But, but they don't have the king that's been promised, right? They had no king. They did as they saw fit. And so what happens then is we find ourselves in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is, is a false start. A false start. 
As we move into 1 Samuel, we find ourselves with a character after, after Eli plays out of Samuel. Samuel's the greatest judge to rule Israel. But when he's old and his sons are, are doofuses, um, the elders demand a king. He has sons that just are disobedient. Um, yeah, they're a mess. And uh, the elders of Israel then come to, come to Samuel and say, look, it's time. We need a king. We need a king. Find us in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let's go ahead and read some more together. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside. My pages are out of order. I lied. And turned aside after gain. Uh, they took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. Now you'll instruct them in how the kings should act. So the people are not blessed under Saul's reign. They, they want a king now. So Saul is, is chosen by God, but the, it's not the person that God had planned. Okay? It's, it's early. It's not time yet. And particularly because of their desires. They want a king just like all the other nations. They want to be under the rule of a man, not under God. And Saul acts in this way. Saul persistently disobeys God. He's just all over the place. Does not follow the law of God. Has the audacity to tell God's prophet. After God's prophet says, you disobeyed God, he says, no, I didn't. I obeyed God. Okay, you say so. Not like I'm speaking for God or anything here. King. He's a mess. And David kind of not rises to power, but glory, if you will, after Goliath. And now the people are shouting, shouting and, and chanting, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Makes you feel really powerful as a king, right? A shepherd boy shows up and he's getting all the accolades. And Saul just continues to disintegrate and fall apart. And the law of God had commanded all mediums or witches, um, seers, soothsayers, all those people out of the land of Israel. And we find ourselves, write this down, in 1 Samuel chapter 28. Crazy. All right, when I say Endor, what do you think of? Ewoks, very good. All right, different Endor. I know I've used my Star Wars examples for the day, but I had to get one more. Saul, chapter 28. Let's just read it. I'm not going to try to explain it. Let's just read it. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went... He and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. Who's the woman? Saul told his people to go find himself a witch. The witch at Endor, who can gather up and conjure spirits. So they go to this woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Why is he going to see this witch? Well, because his prophet had died. The, the person that God had had in his life to give him direction, to give him God's word, and push him, 
has died. And now he finds himself oppressed and getting ready to, to have to go into a battle that he can't win. And he needs God now, of course. Well, let's go find his spirit so that I can finally talk to God. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her, By the Lord. This is my favorite part. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. I'm lying to you. You're doing an evil thing. But as surely as God lives, I will not hurt you. And the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you up to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask of me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. They will die. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Saul's a wreck. And we end 1 Samuel in chapter 31 with a king falling on his own sword, killing himself as a coward. That is surely not what God had intended for a king. 1 Samuel, a false start. 2 Samuel, the reign of David. So at last, Israel has the king of, of kings that God wants, a man after his own heart. In 1 Samuel thirteen fourteen, we see the declaration that David is indeed a man after God's own heart. He's not perfect. He, he commits adultery with Bathsheba and subsequently orders the murder of her husband, Uriah. But he seeks to be faithful, and so God blesses him and the people through him. He establishes Jerusalem as the capital. He brings the arks into the city, symbolizing God's presence and rule. And he rules under God, not independently, but under God, unlike Saul, who ruled independently and not under God. So we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a key text, something that we're going to be discussing. And um, I'm not spending a ton of time on this today because we're going to be discussing it in home gathering. Um, but this, is, this is where we find then the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to his, this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word? With any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
I took you from the pasture, from the following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you, you, David, a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. You shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. For my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I will put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, everything that he just said there speaks of who? Christ, the Messiah, the one that we're waiting for, the serpent crusher. It's all about Christ, except for the one line that's kind of awkward. It says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. That's not speaking of Christ, right? Like, like I said earlier, these Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled at different levels. This is speaking of Solomon. And subsequently, the rest of David's family. But all these other ones are... are the Davidic covenant. I mean, this is speaking of Christ. His kingdom will live forever. Jesus comes from the line of David. This kingdom remains. And we find ourselves in it now with Christ as king. If you go on to read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you see an awesome, awesome prayer of gratitude from David as he goes on. He ends it with, For you, O Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So from 2 Samuel 7 onwards, we're awaiting the arrival of God's king, the son of David, the kingdom of God must be established by him, the Messiah or the Christ. And so then in 1 Kings 1 through 11, it's Solomon in the Golden Age. Solomon succeeds David as king and rules wisely. There's security, prosperity. The temple's built first, it's a permanent symbolic dwelling of God's presence. Then he builds his own palace. The temple comes before his own dwelling. And it's like the pinnacle of the Old Testament. I mean, this is, this is the partial kingdom. Not only are they now in God's land, God's people, God's rule, but they have God's king. The, kingdom is, the kings have been established. The royalty is there. It's almost perfect. This is the pinnacle. But it's not Christ. Not Christ. And unfortunately, we move on then into 1 Kings 12. It would be so nice if we could kind of end there, at least for Israel's sake. They're, they're perfect, almost. They don't have Christ yet, but it's golden. It's great. But then we move on in 1 Kings 12 through 2 Kings 25. There's disobedience, division, decline. Solomon loved many foreign wives or women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, not combines, concubines. All right, he had ladies. That's a different lady every night for three years. This guy is crazy, okay? Why so many wives? Political. Married wives from different nations. What happens when those wives come and live with you? 
They bring their gods with you. All of a sudden we have syncretism, times 700. And so Solomon did then in 1 Kings 11, verse 6, what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow wholly the Lord, as David his father had done. He built high places and temples for all these different gods. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. He saves for himself a remnant, but because they did not follow the Lord and his laws, the warnings from Deuteronomy and Joshua happen. After Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam comes to the throne. The ten northern and eastern tribes rebel against him and set up their own kingdom under Jeroboam. Israel, which had been united for 120 years under Saul, David, and Solomon, is now divided. That's the schism that you see on your outlines from home gatherings. The northern kingdom, confusingly, is called Israel. Uh, they establish a capital in Shechem and in Samaria. The southern kingdom is Judah, and they establish a capital in Jerusalem. Now listen to this. Northern kingdom, Israel. First act as king, he establishes two alternative shrines. He's afraid that the people in the northern tribes will go into Judah to go to Jerusalem to worship God. Well, let's make it easier. Let's do two tribe, or two more shrines on the northern side. And guess what he puts in there? Golden calves. Puts in there golden calves. 1 Kings 12, 28. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Sounds exactly like Sinai. The nation, the northern nation of Israel ends, the end comes in 722. 200 years after the schism, the Assyrians attack Samaria and destroy it. There's no doubt why this happens. 2 Kings 17.7 says all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of Egypt. Doesn't go much better for the southern kingdom. Judah, their decline is told in the second half of 2 Kings and also in 2 Chronicles. So even with the temple, okay, they were in Jerusalem, they had the temple that Solomon built. Even with that in their midst, they still turned to other gods. They might not have the golden calf, but all that influence that Solomon brought in with his 700 wives is still there. And they turned to other gods. So for them, their first end is the Babylonian exile in 597. Uh, when the Babylonians first come in, they defeat Judah as a nation, and they're still kind of existing in this like limbo. Uh, and about 10 years later, the Babylonian captivity happens when the city and its temple are destroyed. And many more Jews are taken into exile in Babylon. And so very, very quickly we move from this golden age of Solomon. God's people, God's place, God's rule, and subsequent blessing with God's king. And so quickly we fall out of that and the partial kingdom is dismantled. The partial kingdom is dismantled. We find ourselves with a dismantled kingdom. There is very little evidence that they are God's people. They're worshiping everything else but God. They certainly are not in God's place. They're in exile. And they face the curse of God's judgment rather than his blessing. They've rejected his rule, and as a result, they are banished from his presence. Just like the fall, man turned away in sin. In Genesis chapter 3, man chose moral legislative autonomy 
and turned away in sin, and God then turned away in judgment. It is all so very sad. But it's not the end. It's not the end. From here we move into the prophets. We move into them proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, of the Christ. We know that God's perfect king is coming. We know that God's promise will be fulfilled. But Paul makes it very clear what we're to do with the stuff that we just read. We're to learn from them as examples that we are not to desire evil, not to desire ourselves, or not to desire our flesh. We're able to, to take Scripture and let it interpret itself so that we go to it and just get what it's saying to us. And we see that this partial kingdom that was so glorious, God's people have been called out, delivered, and taken into God's place. They have the perfect law of God. They have the, the warnings. They have every opportunity to be obedient, and it ends in absolute failure. The kingdom is dismantled. So this partial kingdom is obviously partial for a reason. They almost realize it, but they're missing a key element, and everything will be fulfilled in Christ. So what do we do with that? Reflect on Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. In home gatherings this week, we'll discuss a little bit more of the Davidic covenant and help kind of lay that out for you um, and talk about what that means for us. But I want you today um, enjoy Mother's Day, of course, and your steaks. I'm sure you will be eating. Um, but don't forget this week, think about how many times we've seen, just in these couple weeks, man tries to do it on their own and, and sometimes still accept God's help and almost get it right we just can't do it. We just can't. We just can't. And so I refer you to the prayer at the beginning of the sermon, hourly, let us seek to grow in Christ, to depend on him in every moment, to eradicate every remnant of, of lie, of evil that is in us, not allow one thing to stand so that it might corrupt the rest of us. Let's live wholly unto God and live in his blessing. That. Let's go ahead and pray together, and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, Father, for the illustrations, uh, the history. Uh, Father, just everything that you've given us in your word. Father, we know that you are always faithful. We see repeatedly your faithfulness, your long-suffering love. Father, when we de- deserve nothing but destruction, Father, for you to turn away from us for good, you consistently, consistently, consistently come after us. Father, we reflect back to our short time in Hosea. Father, the love that you described for us there. Father, that you still stand by your covenant. You still stand by your promises, even when we are playing the harlot. Even when we turn aside from you and run to other men, to other gods, to other things that will please us, Father, and ultimately end in our destruction. We thank you for the... (laughs) for the Christ that you brought. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the one who frees us from this problem of sin, who, who takes us out of the, the bondage of Egypt and the bondage of our sin, Father, that consistently pulls us back, that you've delivered us, you've given us power over that, and Father, that we can now live and rest in your Son. Father, the ultimate kingdom purpose is accomplished, that we can live in your rest. 
Lord, we thank you for everything. Remember our friends in Haiti and the mission of the gospel and the kingdom that you've given us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys. You're dismissed. Give your mother.